How are we doing today? Good, good. Good to see you, good to worship with you. We are going to continue in the service now by looking at John chapter 10, the second half. So if you want to find a pew Bible or follow along on the screens, that's where you can find me today. Um, Before we do that, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be here with us now in this time of looking at your word, Lord Jesus, that you would use it to teach us, to guide us, to encourage us, to convict us, Lord. Uh, We come with different weeks and uh, different histories and different pasts, Lord, um, just, just, we pray that your word would intersect with our story, whatever it is this week, that you would uh, speak to what needs to be spoken to in our hearts, and, and give us responsiveness, Lord, uh, prepare us, uh, uh, till the soil, Lord, to uh, make us good soil, that we might receive what you would have. Your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Okay, let me read to you from... John chapter 10, starting at verse 22, says this. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods, lowercase. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, All that John said about this man was true, and in that place, many believed in Jesus. Um, I'm hoping that you got an outline with some scripture this morning. By way of review, we took a little break uh, from John chapter 10 last week for our kickoff, 
but we're going to just do a little uh, survey of the statements that Jesus makes about himself and his relationship with God throughout John chapter 10. So you can see here, I have seven laid out for you. We're going to work through those. Um, here's the reason why. Is, uh, let me use this quote that I've used before, but it is a very important concept from A.W. Tozer that I just want to reinforce as we think about what John chapter 10 can do as it introduces us to Jesus again anew this morning. A.W. Tozer writes this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on to write, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man and woman is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he is deep in his heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul, hear this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. So we do this as individuals. We have a God concept that we are working out of, making decisions out of, right? And then collectively as a church, then he says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God idea of God. So what I want to do is take a couple God concepts that are out there, okay, in the church and in the world and in the comic books. And then I also want to take the God concepts that are introduced in John chapter 10, and I want to compare them this morning. That's what we're going to do, okay? Sound good? All right, good. Let me show you our first picture. I hope we have it. This is The Watcher. Anybody know where the Watcher is from? Okay, I've been learning all this. My son is getting into comic books. But this is early fan, Fantastic Four, okay? And we can use this as a God concept in a very unique way. So you can't read those thought bubbles, but let me read these thought bubbles to you, just two of them. My sworn task, says the Watcher, is to observe and chronicle the universe. So the Watcher can see everything that happens within the universe. Then he says, my curse is to always witness but never participate. So maybe we think of this kind of a God concept, right? That, that the watcher can see everything but never intervenes. His curse is to never intervene. Stephen Crane inverts this idea, speaking of a really, out of a really difficult time, right? when he was witnessing war and, and just the savageness that human beings can befall one another. And he writes this short poem to capture a point. He says, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has, no, has created no obligation, sense of obligation in me. Right? So, so somebody speaking from a really difficult, broken place in humanity could invert this idea that God is cold, 
distant, removed, and therefore does not care about the plight of the human suffering that one is experiencing. And yet when we look at John chapter 10, we, see, we can see a real juxtaposition here, right? From God who is cold and distant to God who is the giver. I'm going to read the two, uh, two verses here from John chapter 10 and we'll work through them. The first one, John 10, 29 says this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. How different is that from this God concept that we just explored, right? That this is talking about a relationship that God has as the giver. That in reality, Christian disciples are the gift of God to Jesus. That we're actually given over to Jesus as a gift to him. And we see here that there's a knowing, a deep knowing. Now, yesterday, in the midst of a a time where I was with Stephen Crane because my team was losing by at least nine goals in the soccer field, and I was really hoping for some divine intervention. All of a sudden, my daughter comes running up to my wife, and she's in really severe pain, right? And she's crying, and she was playing on the playground, and so all last night, Katie is in the ER with glory. She broke her elbow. Right. And, and as a parent, you know that emotional experience, right? Like being sick to your stomach. And then Katie comes back with a story of, you know, poor little five-year-old Glory having to get an x-ray and take her broken elbow and put it in the machine. And she's crying and summoning her courage to put it in this machine. And mom's right there coaching her along speaking to her, comforting her. Now, if that's true of a human parent, that that's the desire of what a human parent would want to do, how much more Jesus knows us, cares for us. And this is what he's trying to communicate to this group of people, this relig these religious leaders, these teachers of the Jewish law that don't really understand who Jesus is and why he's come. And so he's trying to say, look, my sheep know me. They, I, I know them. This is an intimate relationship that we have with one another. James 1.17 says this about the givenness of the Christian disciple. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like sifting shadow, shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And this first fruits is a hearkening back to a teaching in Leviticus. Let me read it to you. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you, uh, to, I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after 
the Sabbath. And so this is an Old Testament teaching that teaches about how when, when the people of God enter into the promised land, that they are instructed to take the first fruits, this reminder of this gift that they were given, of the promised land, that what they should do to help remember what's been given to them is to take the first fruits of that, the very first of it, the best part of it, right, the cream of the crop, and offer it over to God. And this Hebrew word here is bikarim, and it really means promise to come for first fruits. The, pro- the first fruit is a promise to come. So the first fruits is a, a way of, of giving and sacrificing in acknowledgement that I may not have God's kingdom yet in its fullness, but I am sure of this promise to come. And I'm going to make real tangible action in order to represent this promise to come, not for just for myself, but for everyone else. Right? So in a way, we could look at this and we could see the givenness can see the givenness over of the Christian disciple is actually a promise to come. Like everyone who follows Jesus, these first disciples were representative of the first fruits that God gave over to Jesus. And he did it to say, this is a representative. These are my people of a promise to come. The kingdom to come is born in these disciples. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus is bringing into the world and describing in John 10. But how does he accomplish this ultimately? Let me show you a couple more God concepts. I think we have the first one here. You guys know this, right? See the Lord's gym where Jesus is working out. He's pushing up the cross, right? This extremely lion and the lion and lamb analogy of who Jesus is with all his strength lifting up the cross. And, you know, the guys at the gym wear this shirt at the Lord's gym. With great strength is Jesus, the mighty Jesus, right? Or we might have another concept of Jesus that is a little bit different. Jesus hanging out with the lamb. This is nice, gentle Jesus, right? He's very delicate, very sweet. Given our personalities and how we were raised, even our, our parental uh, environment, we might lean towards one of these images, right? We, we might think of Jesus as strong and capable, or we might think of Jesus as gentle and kind and soft. These are two ways that we would perceive what Jesus is like, and how we perceive him, we would probably act in, you know, accordance with our image of who Jesus is, and this would be reinforced, right, in all that we do. This is who Jesus is. He's the nice guy. This is who Jesus is. He's the strong guy, right? Which one is it? Here are these uh, two teachings from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, 
and they will listen to my voice. Let me show you another picture. This is from a Renaissance painter named Francisco de Zuraban, and the title of this picture is Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Showing the Lamb of God, right, that was to be sacrificed in total vulnerability. A different way of thinking about what Jesus was about in the world. He's saying, I have to lay down my life for my sheep, that the good shepherd would lay down his life. You remember what John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus in the Gospel of John? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is that image. This is a God concept, right? But let's do some more work here. So in Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, it says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And between the throne I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Right, so now we're getting a contrast. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. And we get another image. This is an important image for the church that has been important for a very long time called the Pascal lamb. I think we have it here. So we see the lamb slain, and now we see the lamb triumphant. And this image speaks to something about the integration between lion and lamb, right? The strength that comes from total surrender represented in a slain lamb who stands victorious and above it all. And this Pascal lamb, this is uh, a teaching from 1 Corinthians. Remember this church that was messing things up? This image is picked up in the New Testament church by Paul, and he uses it as a way to instruct the church. So hear these words about how he teaches in light of this land, who we should be and what we should do as a church. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of your old yeast so that you be, may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not with the old bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And did you pick it up? Remember that one of the things that Jesus is trying to teach these disciples, right? He's trying to teach his audience of people that are looking on these religious leaders that aren't getting it, is that he's not just here for them. That he is here to go out and to find the lost sheep of Israel and then to take this thing out into the world to find disciples 
to make disciples of all nations. And so he's breaking down these concepts, these narrow concepts, just like he, he wants to do for us again today, this morning, based off of whatever our God concept of, whatever group we think that Jesus belongs to, this great strong group or this nice gentle group that in reality that that there's a way by which these two things go and belong together they're integrated and so that's how we begin to think about wherever we lean how we might find who the lost sheep is who's truly lost in this image which way do we need to go towards those who represent the lion or towards those who represent the lamb both of these belong to jesus these images of strength and sacrifice let me read to you number five and number six here in john chapter 10 i give them eternal life and they will never perish And then finally, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the question we might ask here is, living in light of eternity, how do we make our decisions? John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That what Jesus is giving his disciples is the eternal life that is made possible in being connected and staying connected to who he is. A final picture here. This is by actually a Quaker pastor named Edward Hicks in 1834. He drew this, he painted this brilliant picture called the Peaceable Kingdom. This is out of Isaiah chapter 11. And if you remember in Isaiah chapter 11, it describes this really unique scene, right? Where there's babies and there's cougars and I I love the, the license here. We got all kinds of livestock just hanging out with babies, you know, like they do. (laughs) Right? But then maybe you can't see it's kind of hard off in the distance. The things that being wrestled with in 1834 were the relationship between Native American people and Western white people in the U.S., And so they're having a meeting. And so this image, this is a heavenly image. The lion and the lamb together, the child. Right? This is like Isaiah being translated through Jesus all the way to the book of Revelation as an image to say this is what peace looks like. And then it's contrasted with a real life issue that's being dealt with in its time. 
This is what we do as followers of Jesus when we think about living in light of eternity. We think about how we might be about this peaceable kingdom together with those who are weak and vulnerable and those who are strong and predatorial. How do we bring them together? By the Paschal Lamb, by the Lamb who was slain, the one who gives his life to save the world. Dallas Willard writes this, to his eyes, speaking of Jesus, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control. Though he obviously permits some of it for good reasons to be for a while otherwise than as he wishes, it is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. The word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. And so what Jesus is doing in John 10 in teaching us about what the good shepherd does is to fully seize us with the image of what's possible when we live in light of eternity, when we understand what God is up to through Jesus in the world. And so my prayer is that as we begin to live in light of eternity, that we might see and know that we are representatives of this image out into the world, like first fruits given over to Jesus from God. And we carry this promise wherever we go. What a beautiful picture. So how would, how would your day change in light of living in such a reality? May it move us and mark us to understand just what Jesus is up to as the good shepherd. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, you know us and you teach us, Lord, that we can hear your voice above all the other voices. And so we come to learn and to grow and to declare in light of what you've told us and taught us, that you are good, that you are the one who's worthy of our listening ears, that you are the one who has saved us. And Lord, we acknowledge the sacrifice that you've made in order to save us. We give you glory and honor and praise. And Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come, that we would know this peaceable kingdom, that no matter what is happening, Lord, in the world around us, 
that we might come to understand how we can represent this peaceable kingdom only by way of surrender and connection to you. We thank you that Jesus was so, so unified with you that he could do this wherever he was. Lord, help us to stand this morning with those who met with Jesus after these difficult teachings where John the Baptist was baptizing and who decided that they too wanted to follow, wanted to be a part of this wonderful kingdom. We thank you, God, that we are a gift given from you to Jesus. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.